Morning, everyone. Just got to make a few adjustments. And make sure what we're talking about this morning. Yeah. Like I said, morning. My name is Derek. I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. And um, you're seeing me up here this morning because unfortunately Mark tested positive for COVID on Friday. Um, so he gave me a call and said he's positive, but he's feeling okay. And he's thinking about the sermon on Sunday. And I said, that's good. <laughs> um, and I've been having a few conversations with him about Job, so I thought that's where this was heading. Uh, and then he said, look, I think I may not be able to preach on Sunday. And I thought, oh, that's good. Well, but we have options. We have David Jones. We have a couple of other preachers that we can tap on the shoulder. So I thought that was where it was going. <laughs> Yet here I am. <laughs> bringing you God's message from Job 2. Um, I suspect the reason why Mark was comfortable to approach me with this is because my wife Katinka and I finished the study unit at the Melbourne um, Presbyterian Theological College last semester on the book of Job. So we've enrolled in um, graduate studies since 2020, and we've been trying to at least finish one or two subjects per semester. So by God's providence, last semester, our choice was the book of Job. Um, on a few occasions, I've had conversations with some of my closer friends about how much of a blessing the book of Job has been to me personally. And like I said, um, I've had some more in-depth conversations with Mark, and I'm paying the price for that right now. <laughs> um, I think there's, there's a few reasons, not just one. There's, there's a few reasons why the book of Job has been such a blessing to me. I think, um, I don't know how many is familiar, but Dr. Jared Hood was our lecturer and he did the course notes. So some credit needs to go to him for pointing us to the truth. But I think of the many reasons that has been such a blessing, one of them is the pastoral application to me personally. My takeaway in how God ministered to me while revealing this truth of Job to me. For the first time, I understood that Job was somebody that I could identify with. Job was not this ancient character that was righteous and sinless before God. That was broken down. And we'll talk about that today. But what I understood, that I was Job. You know how in the story of David and Goliath, we often say, don't make the mistake, you are not David. Slaying this big challenge in your life which is symbolic of Goliath. That's not the point of the story. Jesus is David. David is a Christ type. But the purpose for me is today we need to see that 
We are Job. You are Job. I am Job. One of the most beneficial things is to recognize that we are this person. We are suffering. And it helps us to make sense of what's, helping, uh, sorry, what's happening in Job's life. The next was that the whole book of Job was probably um, exposed through exposition. So that for the first time, I understood the purpose of the book in the context of what the rest of the Bible teaches. Without wrong perceptions about Satan, about the nature of Job, about what God is doing, for the first time, this puzzle piece fits in with the rest of what the Bible teaches. In other words, the rest of our theology. I've been 50-50 about sharing a personal testimony with you. And I think like Ben has already done, I think each one of us has a personal testimony of suffering. We are all human. Nobody is immune from the suffering of this world. And so I'm not going to share much detail, but for me what it involved was an extended period of time, perhaps eight to ten years, where through the course of some of my own decisions, my own actions, my own ambition, I ended up in a situation where I developed a chronic health condition. The health condition um, resulted in me breaking out in hives all over my body. Hives that um, could not be controlled. They would pop up one day, stay for 24 hours, and go away. They were all over my face, my arms, my legs, under my feet. Incredibly itchy. And something that no man likes to admit. But on quite a few occasions, I had to ask my wife to put makeup on my face. I had to MC at church. I remember two Sundays when I was long sleeve with makeup on to hide the hives on my face. And that would happen many, many times because I needed to go to work, I needed to still function. And I share this with you because those of you that are currently suffering would identify with this. Suffering does not take you out of the world. You need to continue living. You need to continue going on. And so this physical torment that I was going through, eventually I got chronic medicine that helped to keep it under control. But I could not go two days without taking the medicine and the symptoms would be back. Not two days. And by God's grace, about 12 months ago, he healed me. I've not taken one tablet for the last 12 months. And I have to give God the grace for this because of the journey he's taken me through in healing me again. No doctor had a hand in it. It wasn't medicine. God healed me. And so I, I say this to you to, to give you some insight into why this book has been so precious to me and to help you 
identify that, that your suffering is no greater or lesser than what Job is going through. Everything is valid and it's God speaking to us. So before, before we go, I ask you to pray with me and then what I thought we'll do today is I wanted to share with you a couple of highlights that helped me get the opening narrative about Job, the first two chapters, to get it in the right context. So we're looking at Job 2 today, but I wanted to just bring five, maybe six things to your attention, and then we'll close out with a few thoughts from Job chapter 2. Let's pray together. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise and glorify your name this morning as our almighty God and creator, El Shaddai. Lord, we pray that the life-giving truth, the healing truth of your word recorded in Job will be open to us this morning and in the coming weeks as we work through this book. Open to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, please give us ears to hear and open hearts that is receiving. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please open your Bibles. So we're going to first read from Job 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. That sounds a lot, but it's 13 verses. And like I say, the idea this morning is not to go through it verse by verse, but rather be bringing a few highlights to your attention. So let's read from Job, chapter 2. I'm reading from the, the NIV. But like always, it is very helpful to also look at the other translations. I'll bring a few differences to your attention later on. But the ESV and the New King James, or the King James, does have slight nuances that is interesting to take note of. The heading in the NIV is Job's second test. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it. 
as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Aliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So far from God's word. I came across this article or something. I think it's an article. I couldn't quite completely trace the origin, but it's written by a guy called Magdalene. Yes, a guy. He's 39 years old. He's a transsexual man. In other words, a man living as a woman. And he has thoughts and ideas about the book of Job and God. And this is what he wrote. God's actions constitute a horrifically cruel deed if all that is at stake is a test of Job's faith. Surely God has other less invasive and traumatic ways to gather such data. The theological view arising from a focus on the sovereignty and omnipotence of God shows that God must be in league with Satan, and this is deeply disturbing. If God is capable of destroying ten children and stripping Job of all his human dignity on a bet or on a dare, so he's insinuating that this is a bet or a dare with Satan, then he is, in my mind, a very immature, highly insecure, and a deeply troubled God. Certainly no better or worse than our worst view of Satan. So this is his one hypothesis. This is what's happening. That it's a, a bet between Satan and Christian, uh, sorry, Satan and God, to test Job's faith. He continues with another idea. If we read Job 1 and 2 with the idea that Satan has charged God with serious misconduct, then God is also subject to investigation and must allow such investigation to proceed against his will. So God's own justice, in his mind, would compel God to allow himself to be investigated. The withdrawal of Job's blessing and the imposition of suffering are much more than an investigation into Job's state of mind or Job's heart condition. No, they are an investigation into God himself. So this is his second hypothesis, is that what's happening here, this scene that's playing out in heaven, is Satan turning up and saying to God, I can make you do something that is unrighteous that is unfair, in other words, wrong. And what we see playing out here is Satan being proved right. 
because in God's own words, Satan it incited him to act against Job without any reason. So do you see how the very slightest wrong understanding of these open, opening two chapters leads us in completely the wrong direction about understanding the book of Job? So I wanted to share these few highlights with you with the main purpose of resetting our understanding. Perhaps you're already there. I wasn't. There was a few slight things that had to be readjusted and it changed my whole view on what's happening here in the book of Job. First, the structure of the book. So the book consists of an outer narrative, is when the, the writer is speaking to us and sharing with us stuff that's not privy to Job. And then we have the inner poetry, which is all about the conversations between Job and his friends. So chapter 1 and 2 is the introductory narrative, and it shares with us how Job loses almost everything. All he's got left is his life. Even his health is gone. And then from chapter 3 to 31, it's, it's written in Hebrew poetry. We've got this narrative between Job and his three friends. Extended narrative. There I say boring to read through. <laughs> because it's long. It's extended. There's so much detail. And I'm lucky Mark is going to go through that. <laughs> but there's a lot of gold in there. Chapter 32 to 37 is again poetry. And this new young guy comes on the scene, Elihu. And he shares truth with Job. And this truth paves the way for Job meeting God. Chapter 38 to 42 is known as the God speeches. So God turns up and he, instead of answering Job, interrogates Job. And we'll understand when we get to that why God takes this approach. And then in chapter 42, verse 7 to the, to the finish, 17, is the concluding narrative. So that kind of is the other bookend to chapter 1 and 2. And here the writer shares with us, again, what's happening. Job is exonerated. Job's friends are condemned. They prove to be wrong. And Job is blessed. So this relationship with the outer narrative is critical to understanding everything that's in the middle. If we get this outer narrative wrong, you interpret everything that's in the middle with the wrong lenses. So we are in danger of missing the purpose of the book, in danger of missing the blessing of the book in danger of missing the wisdom that God is teaching us, the wisdom that God is sharing with us. The next highlight I wanted to share with you is the ancient Near Eastern perspective and to understand in which perspective the book of Job, sorry, which context the book of Job was written. The Jews were not the only culture, ancient culture, to produce wisdom writings. We 
tend to think that they were, the only ones that knew anything, but they weren't. Manuscripts have been found from Mesopotamia, from Egypt, from Syria, with very similar wisdom writings. These ancient societies all around Israel shared many common beliefs about the truth of the created world. If we read some of that wisdom writing, even as Christians today, we will not have a lot of objection to what is written. It's in the style of Proverbs. Some of it is in um, the style of Ecclesiastes. Some of it shares even common wording choices. So it is, there is universal wisdom. We know that. So a vast amount of common ground existed in the ancient societies. And so we need to understand what is different about the book of Job. So if there's so many other wisdom writings, why is Job lifted up higher? And why is Job included in the Bible together with the other wisdom writings? Some of the Psalms, Ecclesiastes. So the question is what is the difference? What's the thing that differentiates here? And I think that the right question to ask is, let's first understand what is wisdom. What is wisdom? The Hebrew word is chokmah. In Exodus, the term is revealed to us as being a skillful artisan, skillful in making the ornaments in the temple. However, when we get to Deuteronomy, this chokmah meaning is expanded to mean skillfulness in keeping the law of the Lord. So skillfulness in keeping God's law in your life. So wisdom is expanded to that understanding. Or we may say skillfulness in life. In Proverbs, it's expanded even further, and we learn that God used wisdom in the creation of everything. So now we understand that that wisdom is something that is weaved into all of creation. It's not just God's law, but it's in everything that God created, wisdom. So wisdom, I think, is helpfully described as skillfulness in living. It's not being clever. It's not being ambitious. It's not being strong-willed. It's not being humble. It's not being patient. It's none of those things. Wisdom is skillfulness in how to live. And it's got a couple of foundational things that make it different from these other ancient Near Eastern civilizations. One is that we see through Scripture, specifically in Proverbs, that it's timeless. Wisdom does not change over time. This is important because remember when I said the purpose of the book of Job is that we have to identify with Job. Yes, Job possibly lived, what's it, three, four thousand years ago. But it's timeless. It very much applies to you personally, to me personally. The second foundational thing about wisdom is that it's observing human life. 
It's concerned with human behavior. Very specifically, all through Proverbs, all of wisdom is centered around advice about living, human living. In other words, us. We are all humans, aren't we? And then the third foundational element of wisdom, in other words, how to live skillfully, is that it presupposes a worldview that includes creation and that same creator God giving his law. So it presupposes creation and the law. So the wisdom that is revealed in Job is unique because of those three foundational items. The ancient Near Eastern uh, wisdom was based on a different understanding of God. They believed in the gods, the pantheon of gods, with many gods ruling and the father god El. So a distorted view. And what we see here in chapter 1 and 2 is that that distorted view is corrected. And I'll touch on that a bit later. So this is important to understand correctly, and the reason I take a bit of time to just set this apart is because we just discussed that Job's friends were rebuked by God in chapter 42 for being wrong. They had the wrong understanding of who God is and how he operates, and they were rebuked for that. In other words, it's sinful. It's sinful and wrong of us to construe God's word in a way that suits us. This is why it's important to get it right. Because it's wrong to get it wrong. The third point I wanted to highlight is that we have a lovingly sovereign God. And I put the word lovingly and sovereign together for a reason. Have you noticed that in Job 1 verse 8... That it's the Lord that brings Job to Satan's attention. It's a subtle thing. But have you noticed that? We see that again in Job 2 verse 3 that we read this morning. Job 1 verse 8, God says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Can it be that Job was not on Satan's mind until God brought him to his attention? We see it again in 2 verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? So I put to you, could it be that we have a lovingly sovereign God that will use whatever it takes to bring his people home? Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me will never be driven away. For I have come to, from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Who's that? It's Yahweh. It's God. The same God that is speaking now in Job 2. God says... And Jesus confirms this, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
It's God the Father's will that nobody will be lost. I shall lose none of all those the Father has given me. But I'll raise them up on the last day. So we have a lovingly sovereign God that even before the first verse of Job 8 had a servant on his mind that he loved. And he would do whatever it takes to bring him home. And then the book of Job plays out. Starting the book of Job with that in mind makes all the difference. The fourth point I wanted to bring to your attention is the question, is Job really sinless? We read in the first two chapters, no less than three times, that Job was blameless and upright. So what does this mean? He feared God, he shunned evil. We read it in Job 1.1, Job 1.8, and again in 2 verse 3. God himself declares that Job is blameless and upright. So it's true, right? And I'm not disputing that. Job was blameless. But does that mean he was sinless? We often make the short jump to think that blameless and sinless is synonyms. Whereas they are not. They're not the same thing. To be blameless means that at that point in time, there's no open or pending charge or accusation against Job. It does not speak about anything that happened before or after. But at that point, Job is blameless. In other words, all has been forgiven. Today, in the shadow of the cross, we understand how that works. We are blameless because Christ interceded for us and we are forgiven. But we are not sinless. Sinless means that we've never sinned. So if we think Job is sinless, it means we think that he has never sinned. And if we think that way, we will never associate and identify with Job. Because he was sinless and blameless. I'm sinful. How can this life of a man have any meaning to me? He's so different. He was righteous. He was upright. I'm not. We need to correct our thinking about Job. Job was not sinless. Romans 3.23 teaches us, all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. All from Adam. But then 1 Peter 2 teaches that there is one. Jesus had no sin. So does 1 Peter 1.18, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, Luke 1.35, 1 John 3.5, and the list goes on. Confirming that Jesus was sinless. So there's only one. Everybody fell short except one. And that one is not Job. That one that was sinless is Jesus. So in this opening narrative, a few clues are given to us 
to point towards this fact. And I'll just list a few of these for you to think about. And this is why I say chapter 1 and 2, understanding it correctly, is so helpful as we journey through the rest of the book. In the first three verses, we read that the pinnacle of Job's blessing, when he's described to us, when we are introduced to this man, his children are mentioned, no names. But then following that, in a lot more detail, his possessions are listed. So the pinnacle of Job's blessing is considered his possessions. Something to take note of. Could that be that it's reflecting of this ancient Near Eastern understanding of wisdom? That it's a transactional relationship between God or the gods? That if you do good, they will bless you materially? So Job's material blessing is listed as the, the, the pinnacle of his blessing because that's the understanding they had. It's wrong. The second thing is Job's children. Have you even thought about his children? What are they doing? Chapter 1 verse 4 says that they would go feasting. If there's one thing you want people to say about you and your obituary, would it be this? That you feasted all the time? I don't think so. But the writer chooses to share this specific detail with us about his children, not even their names, but the fact that they feasted on multiple days. Some incorporate or understand that to be their birthdays. But that not, that's not conclusive because the new King James says that they feasted on select days, chosen days. Drinking is mentioned. Eating and drinking. Drinking wine. In chapter 1, verse 13. Job knows something is wrong. Because each time a feast is finished, Job would get up, call his children, and cleanse them, sanctify them. Why would he do that? Because in his heart, in his heart and, the, and the writer shares with us, that perhaps they cursed God. What an incredible thing to think about your children. If it said perhaps they got drunk. But to curse God. And Job has this on his heart that perhaps my children is so depraved that in their feasting they would curse God. So he sacrifices for them. He brings offerings for them. But this is weird. Because the, the practice of sacrifice is usually the person bringing their own sacrifice. So Job's children would not even come on their own. We read that Job calls them. So Job does all these things for them. The children do nothing for themselves. They do not have a heart that fears God and shuns evil. So could it be that this is shining a bit more light 
on what's following the book of Job. Then we have Job's wife. There's not much to say about Job's wife other than unbelievable. I'll come back to Job's wife a bit later. And then I also want to point to a subtle difference in Job 1.22 and Job 2 verse 10. It's the two verses that share with us that in this Job did not sin. So after all of his suffering, Job did not sin. And it's helpful here to read from either the ESV, the NASB, or the King James. So verse 122 says, first chapter, In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with any wrongdoing. When we get to chapter 2, verse 10, it simply says, In this Job did not sin with his lips. So could it be that chapter 1 is addressing Job's physical response and his heart condition? Whereas in chapter 2, it's only conclusive that he did not sin with his lips. But there's no expression about what's happening in Job's heart at that point in time. So does this give us some more insight that what is to follow is about something in Job's heart? A root of something. So I go back to the original idea. We have a sovereignly, sovereignly loving God that even before the start of this first verse of chapter 1 has the servant on his mind that he loves with something that needs to change. Perhaps it's this root that is in Job's heart. The fifth thing I wanted to bring to your attention is Satan. A lot of wrong understanding follows from exactly these two chapters about what's shared about Satan and the heavenly court. One of the main reasons for that is in the Hebrew, it's written ha-satan, which means the Satan. So it's not shared in the book as a personal name, it's shared as a title. A lot of the translators have placed it in context and the NIV that we read all just list Satan. But in the Hebrew, it's written Hasatan, the Satan. So when you say the sons of God appeared before Christ and the Satan was among them, it's not how we speak. It's like you say everybody was here and the president was here. You're talking about somebody's title. But this was kept by the translators because Hasatan has such a um, multi-level multi meaning. It means the accuser, it means the adversary. And it's helpful to think about these two depending on what context we're talking about. The adversary, when we are talking in, or thinking in terms of battle. Satan is the enemy of the believer. And so in that sense, he's our adversary. But when we are in this heavenly courtroom, the accuser is more apt. Because we are now thinking judiciously in, in, in a courtroom. He's the accuser. 
And so using any one of these two descriptions is correct. But making the case that the accuser, Hasatan, is just a different angel that has this title is wrong. And there's a lot of people, well, pastors, preachers, that preach that, that teach that. This has so much influence from the ancient Near Eastern culture about this council of God, of sorry, council of gods, where we see a council of many gods headed up by one father-type god, El, but he's only father in, na in name, but he has no control. These gods run amok. They collude with each other. They're mischievous on earth. And they do all these things that causes a whole lot of drama. That's all the myths. And so interpreting Hasatan as just a title of an angel or a god, I think sways too much to this view of how the world is created by multiple gods, like the pantheon of gods. And that's wrong. And I say that's wrong conclusively because specifically in Job chapter 2, this view of it is completely obliterated. We see in Job 2 that Satan has no power. He's got no authority. We see that Yes, he has entrance to heaven, but instead of thinking about why does he have entrance to heaven, the truth is that he's reporting as a servant. He cannot go the whatever way he wants. He's obligated before God to come and report, what have you been doing? <coughs> Satan is not free to roam. Satan is God's creation. He's a being created by God, and under that creation, he bends to God's will. Satan is our enemy, but he's God's servant. We shouldn't be worried about the fact that he has access to the courtroom. What we should be thinking is, he has no choice, he has to report to God. He can't but not submit to God's authority. So Satan is there amongst the other angels, the other sons of God, because he has to be. And so what this concludes, or what this draws us to, is the harsh truth that Job's suffering, the source of his suffering, is God. Satan is the tool. But this is what we have to admit. That having a sovereign God means that nothing is out of his control. And when we suffer, it's God that allows that to happen. Not without purpose. Not without reason. But our nature is that when we suffer, we want to point the finger. I wanted to. I pointed the finger at everybody that was doing wrong against me. 
I was wrong. Because God allowed all that to happen. It was in his sovereign plan. And in his time, he reveals the purpose. He does speak to us in suffering. And so the last thing I wanted to note, to put this in perspective, and it's, a, it's for a bit later on, is that I've heard a lot of people say that Job had all these questions and he's never answered. And it's true, Job is not directly answered by God. God does not answer Job's questions directly as to why he's suffering. But we must not make the mistake to think that Job is not answered. In chapter 38, when God turns up and starts speaking to Job and interrogating Job, we see that Job melts away. He humbles himself and he admits, God, I ask questions about things I have no understanding. And then he's reconciled with God. His friends is proven wrong and rebuked and he's blessed. But what we miss in this event of Job is that Job is answered and Job's answer is God's presence. The mere presence of God is Job's answer. And we should not miss that. Because that is, the, that is true for our lives as well. Remember, Job knew nothing about what was happening in heaven. He had no idea. We are shared that detail for a reason. Because God is teaching us. So we need to remember that Job is answered. But we often say... God's answer comes in a different way than what we expect. If you ask for a green car, you might get a red one. And we say that jokingly, but in this case, it's true. Job asked for answers, and we shouldn't miss that he got his answer. It was not what he expected. It was not what he thought. But that's only because his thought was wrong. The answer was the same all along. And so we need to consider that. Is our questions and our interrogations and our investigations not on the same track as Job? A few thoughts on chapter 2 specifically. So these five, six things that I highlighted was things that I found very helpful in understanding this opening narrative of Job. And it places the context of everything that follows on a completely different path from what some of the distortions I've been heard preached to me before. So this is not a wager between Satan and Job. Satan has no input in this. In fact, He's never even mentioned in the book again. Same with Job's wife. He plays such a small part as a tool in God's sovereign purpose that he's mentioned in these opening scenes and then never again. We must never allow ourselves to believe that God is cruel. 
Job's response in verse 10 of chapter 2 that we heard today is correct. It's appropriate. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? This is true universally. And it's true whether you or me understand the purpose or the cause of our suffering. We'll see in Job that understanding the cause and the purpose of your suffering is not critical. God's presence is the answer. Secondary, if God chooses to reveal the cause and the purpose, that's a blessing. And just briefly on Job's wife, like I said, there's not much to say other than unbelievable, morally deficient response from Job's life partner. I mean, that must have cut really deep. But this is not mentioned without purpose because we see kind of uh, Satan behind this. He's looking for a quick win. Because if Job would succumb to this temptation or to this test, it would prove to be a successful temptation. And Job would renounce his beliefs about God and kill himself. That's effectively what she's counseling to him. But Job knows this is wrong. So the counter-purpose of this is it provides Job an opportunity to stand strong in the faith. And we see that he successfully resists this temptation. So this test, temptation then becomes a test which he successfully passes. It does lead to further suffering, but we see Job remains steadfast in his belief. So his blamelessness and his uprightness is genuine. He's not a superficial Christian. He's, in today's language, he's a reborn Christian. His heart has been renewed. So just lifting out that context that there's even purpose in that one short sentence revealed to us about Job's wife. And then we see Job's friends coming on the scene. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar from verse 11 onwards. And we'll have a lot more detail about them moving forward. The common understanding is that these friends function as representatives of traditional views in the ancient Near East. Each one of them coming at Job's problem with a slightly different angle and a slightly different approach and a slightly different solution to the problem. We see the friends come together by arrangement, so they, they obviously cared for Job. They wanted to sympathize with him, they wanted to bring condolences and to grieve with him. But we read that when they saw Job and the extent of his suffering, they didn't know what to say. So they sat with him for seven days, not speaking. And this leads into forcing Job to speak first. And this is our next step next week. 
outside to just reiterate the critical importance of this opening narrative of Job. These first two chapters set the scene for what is shared with us in the, the inner details, the poetry, the Hebrew poetry, and these interactions between Job, his three friends, and then later Elihu. And getting these subtle things right puts all the perspective to when God turns up and the ending of the book. I trust that it helps you to identify with Job. To identify that in Christ we are blameless and upright. Because God has forgiven us, but it doesn't mean we're sinless. We are the same as Job. We live in a world where we suffer terrible, terrible things. I know that when we experience suffering, we experience it in the same extreme as Job has. Because when it's on you, when it's touching your flesh, it's the worst kind of suffering and torment. There's nothing that equals it. And we all experience that. And so God is loving. He shares with us why this is happening in our world. He shares with you why it's happening. And he gives us the tools to say, I am graceful. My presence is your answer. Understanding, wisdom is important. But God's presence trumps it all. So in this, I want to point you to Christ. Because Christ is the one that declares us blameless and upright in heaven. The accuser cannot level the accusations at us anymore. He is not the adversary of God. This war has been won. He's been defeated. We are blameless and upright, and we can come before God and be in his presence in our time of suffering, in our time of joy, in every moment of life. Thank you for listening. Amen. Please pray with me. Our lovingly God and Heavenly Father, Lord, it is wonderful that you place this truth in our hearts. Lord, it's difficult to digest sometimes that even suffering is in your control. Even the difficult times that we go through, Lord, is, is in your hands. But through the renewing of our minds through the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask you, please help us to see the other side. Help us to see the blessing that there is in having a lovingly sovereign God that has sent his own son to pay the price so that we can be declared blameless. We praise you, Lord, in this morning for the freedom to confess this, May ask, Lord, please, 
through your Holy Spirit, encourage us. Lift us up. May the issues that we have, the questions that we have, melt away in your presence. And may we come together as you have intended us to be, united in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.